Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the sixth chapter. The Gospel of Luke, the sixth chapter. And as you're turning there, uh, let me correct one thing that Brad said in his introduction of me. I did call him three years ago, but it wasn't so much to welcome you as it was to warn you. We are a mess, uh, but it's our family, and you'll fit right in, and you have. And so I just want to say it was a warning and a welcome. But uh, let's look to God's Word, and as we look to His Word, let's also ask His help. Let's pray together. Father, as already has been mentioned this morning, we need Your help, and we need Your Word. And we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit right now to... Open our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we would see Jesus, that we would hear Him clearly, and that we would walk away changed by His love and grace. Be with this reading and preaching of the text. We ask this in Your name. Amen. This is Luke chapter 6, and I'm going to be beginning in verse 46. These are the words of Jesus Christ. He says, Why do you call me? Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Thus ends our reading of God's Word. As I've been thinking and wrestling with this text this week, I need to begin with a confession. I've got a problem And maybe some of you struggle with this too. My problem is that I like to be liked. Anyone else struggle with that? I like to be liked. In fact, right now, I'm wondering if you even like what I'm saying and like me for saying it up here. You know know why that's a problem for me sometimes? And I know this might shock some of you, so I want to prepare you and warn you. I'm not always very likable. Now, those of you that are nodding your head, I want you to know that I see you and I will be praying for you this week. But I'm not always very likable. So what I have to do is sometimes I have to fake it. Or fake and say and do things that I know maybe I shouldn't say or do things that I know maybe I shouldn't do, but what I think will make you like me. So I pretend. And I put myself under a curse. And that curse is called pretending. And you know, the reason why it's a curse and why it can lead you to destruction is because lots of times you can fool most people around you. And lots of times you can even fool yourself. But you can't fool God. No matter what you say or do in public, He knows our hearts. And he knows who we really are better than we know ourselves. Now, if that sounds scary to you this morning, I promise you it's good news. And our text, I hope, will reveal why. 
But if we listen and follow the words of Jesus this morning, it'll make all the difference in the world. Have you ever heard the phrase, a dynamite comes in small packages? Well, this parable is short, and this parable is small, and it's clear and direct. But it is dynamite for our souls. And it is dynamite for any of us who might pretend to play Christian, to give lip service to Jesus, when in reality, our hearts are far from life. And so let's look at our text. This is the first parable recorded either in the Gospel of Luke or Matthew where it also occurs. And it comes at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Sermon on the Mount where we have all these contrasts and juxtapositions where Jesus, the, in fact, the only time we have a full recorded sermon beginning to end probably in all the Gospels. Everything else that we have of Jesus' words are within conversations and when he's talking to maybe a few people at a time. But the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, but cursed are the rich. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Remember all of that? Well, this text comes at the end and thus serves in a lot of ways as a summary of everything that Jesus has already said on the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is addressing those who are still in front of him. And at the beginning of the Sermon on, we, on the Mount, we learn that there was a great crowd And a great multitude of people who were following Jesus. Who had come to hear him speak. And like with any great crowd, there were people there from probably all walks of life. And all backgrounds and all histories. Who had all kinds of needs. Who had all kinds of fears and struggles and failures. Some who probably believed in him. Others who maybe were struggling. And still others who were probably there simply because they wanted to kill him. And they wanted to trap him. Sounds like in some ways a lot of our own crowds today. I don't know where your heart is at this morning, but there's still people who come to church, who come to worship, and who listen to sermons and who do Bible studies, who their hearts are all over the map. And to that crowd, and then to us, because the reason why I think it's incredibly appropriate that we ask ourselves the same question Jesus asked of them, is that when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? You know, historically at that time, it's not as if there were a ton of people at this point in Jesus' ministry who were running around calling him Lord, Lord. So he's not only thinking about the people right in front of him, I think he's thinking about all of us, even those of us here this morning. People who were intrigued and fascinated by this man from Galilee. And he says, why do you, who are right in front of me, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And yet you don't do what I say. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I feel about two feet tall. I imagine a lot of people back then even also hung their head. In shame. Why do you not do what I tell you? I like the message, which is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson records this passage and translates it this way, which I think is helpful to understand what he's saying. He says, Why are you so polite with me? Always saying, Yes, sir, and that's right, sir, but never doing a thing I tell you. 
These words are not mere additions to your life, like homeowner improvements to your standard of living. These are words of foundation, words to build a life on. As we will see in a moment, the words of Jesus are not how to have an easier life. They're not how to have your best life now. But they are words of life. And they are words on which to build a life. Three observations then I want to make from the parable that Jesus tells. Not often we get a parable where Jesus begins and then tells us exactly what he means by it. You know, as we've been studying these parables, some of them are pretty tricky and hard. And if you weren't here last week uh, when Brad preached on the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, I suggest you go back and listen to it. In fact, a lot of his points I wanted to steal and use today, but that's not right. And again, I like to be liked, and so I got to get over that. Um, so I'm not going to do it. But go back and listen, because there's so many, so many of these parables are so complex and so difficult. But here we have a gift where Jesus says, "This is what I mean to say. This is what's going on." So three observations: we have a warning from this parable, we have a promise in this parable, and this parable makes and gives us a realization. So first, the warning. Here's what it is. Not only is it foolish, but it is incredibly dangerous to just be polite with Jesus. Again, the message records Jesus saying, why are you so polite with me? But that's it. Or to say it another way, to pretend that you are a follower of Christ. To pretend. We live in a culture... And when I say we, I say this as an adopted Mississippian. Um, so I, I'm not just talking from someone who was born in Ohio. Diane and I feel that this is home. So when I talk about us, I really mean it. We live in the buckle of the Bible belt, what the author Flannery O'Connor called a Christ-haunted culture. Everybody's a Christian in Mississippi. In fact, this past week I was talking with somebody who is an elected official and they were saying how you can't run for office anymore in Mississippi and it's always been this way unless on the back of your bio somewhere it says you are either an elder or a deacon or a member in good standing of some church. And nothing inherently wrong with that, but again, you everybody is a Christian. Everybody goes to church. Everybody at some point will say Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is my personal Savior. And praise God for that. But again, as Jesus is saying, be care- don't just be polite. Don't just give it lip service. You can call Jesus Lord and even Savior. You can say all the right things, and you can do all the church activities, which are all great in and of themselves. You can do tons of Bible studies and look up words, but if you don't work those words into your life, If all you have is the outward and external paraphernalia, Jesus is saying, you're dead meat. In fact, you're like a builder who builds his house in a dangerous way without any protection or true security for when the storms come. Even with all of our modern advances and tools, it's still hard to build a house. It's still hard work. One ancient commentator said, Every Christian knows that building a house is not an easy endeavor. 
Rather, it involves exhausting and frightening effort, strenuous hardship, along with continuous and life-threatening struggles. For those of you who have built a house, whether yourself or had a house built, you know it's a lot of work and a lot of energy. In Israel and Palestine, villagers then and now only build houses in the summer. Because in the summer, it's dry and warm and the weather is good for building a house. You don't build houses in the winter because that's when the rain comes. And even along the ridge, sometimes you can even find snow in Jerusalem. You don't build houses in the fall or in the winter. You build them in the summer. But because nobody wants a stone house to build one in the snow. But summer is dry and warm and it's very suitable for construction. But there's one problem. The soil in the summer becomes so hot, it becomes hardened. Because their soil has this stuff called clay in it. Anyone, sound familiar for anybody? you got this clay. And the problem with that is it can do all kinds of damage in that soil. So what it means then, when you dig down, it's hard work. When it's hot and it's laborious, back-breaking kind of work to dig down and to build a foundation. I want to read a passage uh, to you from a book. Um, Again, if you want to be liked and want to sound smart, just quote for a while from a book um, that you've read. And anyhow, I want to read from this book because I think it's a great uh, way to understand just exactly the context of this passage, particularly when it comes to building. It's by Kenneth Bailey. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he says this, It's easy to imagine a builder in summer with little imagination or wisdom, thinking that he can build an adequate one-level house on hard clay. With his pick, he tries digging, and he finds the ground is indeed like bronze. That's from Leviticus. talked about the ground in Canaan being like bronze. The walls will not be more than seven feet high. It is hot. The idea of long days of backbreaking work under a hot, cloudless sky does not appeal to him. He opts to build his simple one or two room home on the hardened clay. The underlying rock is down there somewhere. It'll all work out. He constructs a roof with reasonable overhang and is pleased that he has managed to finish before the onset of the rains. That winter, however, there is more rain than anyone can remember, and the ground rapidly becomes soaked. A small runoff stream starts to flow down his street, and the ground begins to turn into the consistency of chocolate pudding. The clay under the stone walls of his newly built house begins to settle and buckle as a result. The stones are uncut field stones. One stone after another pops out of the wall. A serious bulge develops in one wall. The bulge expands and finally gives way, bringing down the entire structure. First century Middle Eastern villagers used mud for mortar. If the wall is built on the underlying rock, it will last only as... if If the wall is not built on the underlying rock... It will last only as long as the ground under it remains dry and prevents settling. The foundation in the house will only stand as long as all the conditions around it remain favorable. 
Now that's realistic then as well as now. In 1991, in October, a major apartment complex totally caved in upon itself because of this very reason. The soil underneath it was loose soil and a sewer line burst and the water eventually did its job and the walls buckled in caves such that a reporter for a Jerusalem paper when he visited the site wrote that it looked like the devastation of an earthquake. Unless you build upon the rock, upon the bedrock, you're putting yourself on dangerous ground. All because the building wasn't built properly on the bedrock, which is the preferred practice. Now, who would be so foolish as to build a house with no foundation? The answer is somewhat rhetorical, right? Nobody, or I should say, nobody who knows what they are doing. What Jesus is saying in this analogy is that anyone who hears his words but never applies them, never acts upon them, he or she is like a fool. People who build during the summer and sunny days without any foundation are showing by their actions that they think that those cloudless sunny days will last forever, that life will continue to go well for them, that no problems can ever come their way. Just think positive and it will all go well. But what happens when the floods come? What happens when the waters begin to rise? As part of the high priest's prayer on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, prayers would be offered for all the people in Israel, but sometimes it would be offered for the people of the Sharon Plain, also the valley, which had given tendencies to be flooded. And this is what the priest would pray, particularly for these people who were in danger of floods during the fall and winter. May it be pleasing before you, Lord God, our God and God of our fathers, that our houses not turn into graves. That our houses not turn into graves. If you don't hear and follow Jesus, your house, your life, can become your very own grave. And there were people who were coming to Jesus then and now who were guilty of doing that. And you know, as I read that and think about it, the true reality is in different times in my life and in my heart, I'm guilty of both. Of living and acting and trying to build upon my own foundation. My own walls of my own insecurity. My own rooms of pretending. And guilt of trying to have it all or really just trying to look like I have it all. But what happens when the flood comes? But there's a merciful warning as well to this parable. It's not too late. It's not too late. There's still time to run and to turn and to repent and to lay that foundation. There is what one commentator calls a hidden invitation to be like the first builder and not the second. Let's now talk about the second observation of this text, a promise. We talked about a warning. Now let's look at the promise. The promise is this, that the first builder is one who has built well and is secure. The promise is, if you build your life 
upon the words of Jesus and live them out, you will be secure. Notice I didn't say it will all go well or easy, but you will be secure. The storms may rise and the floods may come, but you won't be destroyed. The first builder is contrasted from the second one. The first builder is a person who has foresight and realizes that fair and cloudless weather will not last forever. Whether he has to dig ten feet or only one foot, he digs down deep until he finds the bedrock, or what elsewhere is called the cornerstone. That sound familiar? Jesus is also called the cornerstone, our cornerstone in the book of Hebrews. And he builds his house upon it. Now in the temple, during the Day of Atonement, another thing that the priest would do is he'd come into the Holy of Holies, which was called the dwelling place of the Most High God. Only one day a year, he's allowed in there. He comes in, and along with it, he's holding a pan of burning charcoal representing the sins of the people who have confessed and had offered sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And on this pan was also covered with incense representing the prayers of the people. So this high priest is literally carrying physically the symbol of people's need before a holy God to be forgiven. And he would lay it on a stone that was slightly elevated than anything else in the room. You know what the name of that stone was? The foundation stone. The priest would lay on the foundation the people's need for cleansing and forgiveness. The foundation was where people met their God and had their sins forgiven. The man who builds upon a foundation is called a wise man. Jesus is saying, you are being like this guy when you hear and obey what Jesus is telling you. Jesus is saying you can have security from the storms of this life, even more so from the storms of judgment by obeying Jesus. Failure to obey is destruction. Storms and water always representing God's judgment in the Old Testament. And no more judgment so severe than the final judgment. Not just the storms of this life, but the judgment that has come to face every single person and every single person who is sitting in this room this morning, will be judged. And he's saying you can have rescue and redemption from hearing the words of God, which we'll talk about next week, saying, depart from me, I know you not, for being judged according to what your sins deserve. But Jesus says, I've come to be the chief foundation. I've come to be the bedrock. I've come to offer you forgiveness of sins. I've come to be a rescue from the raging storm and the torrent, even of God's justice and his judgment. He says the way to do that is by obeying what he says. It's still a temptation as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent says the way to life is to disobey God's commands. Jesus says, no way. The way to life is to obey. 
Now again, there's a problem. Just like my problem of pretending, I'm not so likable. If obedience brings life, we know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not anyone here is capable of pleasing a three times holy God. But Jesus has come. And He has built and He has fulfilled the law on our behalf so that those of us who hear and listen and put our faith in Him and in Him alone, we get forgiveness. And we get life. And His mercies are new every morning. And we get joy and peace because we get to be with the foundation and the author of it all. God Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, because we're all sinners and we can't do that on our own, we've got to build our life on a firm foundation of the Messiah rather than on the quicksand of our own pathetic attempts at attaining favor. And it's hard work, right? It's hard work, but it's necessary work. If you look outside when you leave here this morning, you'll see all kinds of construction beginning. Very capable people. Again, I'm not allowed anywhere near that site. And neither of you. But I'm not allowed because i got ten thumbs. I can't build a thing. Um, But I'm beginning to be okay with that. Um, They've got to dig down to lay a good foundation because we have this thing called Yazoo Clay. More than 30 feet deep before we see any steel or any pillars of the sanctuary go up. We've got to dig down. And I'm glad we're doing it. It's hard work, but it's necessary to lay a firm foundation so that the building doesn't cave upon itself and collapse in upon himself. It's necessary work, but it's hard. But I do want to stress at this point, notice that the foundation itself, what Jesus is saying, is not our our obedience or our disobedience. It could be easy to make that mistake. Jesus is not saying, build your life on the foundation of your own obedience to me. He's saying, build your house, which is your life. Everyone's a builder here. But our obedience is not the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's saying, build your life on him, on his finished and completed work. Build your life upon that. Not on trying harder or doing better. Build your life on that. Not thinking that you've got to have it all. The house is your life. The bedrock are the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. So what are you building on? Are you building your life by listening to these words and acting them upon them? By doing what he says? Or are you building your life by pretending that you've got it all together and following your own will? Looking good is not good enough. Knowing right is not right enough. We build upon the rock. But what does that mean? I think it means what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what this tells us? It tells us that before you are anything else, before you are anything else, you're his. Before you are a success or a failure, before you are a husband or a wife, 
before you are a student or a stockbroker, you are a child of God, loved by Him and forgiven by His grace. That's who you are. That's the foundation of your life. It's Him. The life I live, I now live by faith. It's not me anymore. I'm gone. The temptation to pretend is the old sinful flesh rearing its ugly head saying, do better, look nicer. People don't like you. Try harder. Especially God doesn't like you. You know, the Ten Commandments are beautiful and wonderful. They can get you into trouble if you think they're God's ten rules about how to get Him to love you. They're so much better than that. Because how does the Ten Commandments start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. Who already rescued you. He already has this relationship with us. So build a life. Live, be who you are. Most of the admonitions and encouragements in the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles are saying, be who you are. Christian, why do you call me Lord, Lord and don't act like it? That that's true or that that means anything. Be who you are. It's saying that life matters and that obedience to Jesus is living out who you already are as a believer. And that's great freedom because He already loves you. If you're in Christ, He already loves you. The cross is not Jesus bending the will of the Father, getting the Father to love all these sinners. Now the love of God was secured before the foundation of the world when He sent His Son to die for you and to me, to be put in our place, for us to receive His righteousness and for Him to take on the weight of our sin. He already loves you. He loves you more than you can know and imagine. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Don't do what I who love you so much. I'm going to die for you. What I tell you. There was a warning. There's a promise. And our third observation is a realization. There's this reality. Did you notice that the storm and the flood hits both houses? The storm and the flood hits both houses. The floods rage against those who build well and those who build foolishly. Faith in Jesus does not provide some magical protection from the storms of life. As I said, it's not an easier life for your best life now or how to be happy and grin all the time. Faith in Jesus is protection from the destruction of the storm. It doesn't protect you uh, that the storm would come, but it promises that you will withstand its greatest danger. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. As simply a cute song won't get you through getting sick or losing your job or when your spouse leaves. But Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so as a bedrock, as a foundation can withstand anything. No torrent or lightning strike so severe that can rob you of your future and your joy 
in Christ and your destiny. I recognize that it could be very easy to walk away from this message and think, okay, all the red letters in the New Testament, there's my checklist. And that's what I need to do. And you'd be right and wrong at the same time. Obeying Jesus means giving up pretending that you can please a holy God without His Christ's finished work. Obeying Jesus means loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Obeying Jesus means taking seriously His promise that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Obeying Jesus means when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone would come to the Father, let him come through Me. So obeying Jesus means to come. To plant your feet and your gaze at the foot of His cross. And to receive grace and mercy in life everlasting. It means trusting that because He was raised, so too shall you be raised. It means giving up on trying to look better and instead involves actually being better. Remember when Peter sank? It's when he took his eyes off of Christ and looked at himself and the waters. When you meet the real Jesus face to face, you want to obey him. You want to follow him. Eugene Peterson in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, writes, One of the delightful discoveries along the way of Christian Christian discipleship is how much enjoyment there is, how much laughter you hear, and how much sheer fun you find. Now he was talking in the context of Psalm 126, which says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And we've looked at the warning, the promise, and the reality of this parable. And I want to uh, conclude a story that I heard a few years ago uh, from a pastor and an author a man who's written about obedience and a man who's written about grace. And when he recently published a book about grace, he was asked the question, when did you first learn about the grace of God? And he said, I learned first about the grace of God when I was seven years old and my father taught me. He said he had some neighbors next door who were good friends of his and playmates and they were moving to another city in town, and he didn't want them to move away. So what he did, while they were away visiting this new city, he got into their house because he had seen the movie Home Alone, where he got the idea, and he turned on all the faucets, and he put rags in the drains. And the house flooded. Thousands and thousands of dollars of damage. He came home, his parents were talking about how awful and how evil it was. This man said, I lied through my teeth. I said, I, how awful and how terrible a person it must be who would do such a thing like that. And he said, but at night, I prayed to God. And I prayed two things. First, I prayed for forgiveness because I knew what I had done was so terrible and so wrong. And secondly, I prayed that I wouldn't get caught. And I prayed that every day and every night 
for about a week. A week later, he was outside playing with his friends. His father came to the door and called him inside. He said, Justin, I want to talk to you for a minute. And the jig was up. And he knew it. He came inside and his father said, Justin, do you know anything or did you have anything to do with what happened? And he said again, I lied through my teeth. And I said, no, it's awful, but I've been praying for that person who did that wrong and terrible thing. He said, which was true. And his father said, son, a neighbor across the street saw you go into the house and saw what you did. And he said, I broke down and I cried and I cried. And my father said, as he looked at me, son, I am so angry with you and I am so mad at you. How could you do such a thing? Not only have you done this terrible thing with terrible damages, but then you lied to me about it, not once, not twice, but repeatedly all week long. And what's more, God is really mad at you and I'm going to take everything away from you right now that you like and I'm going to ground you. And the son, he looked up at his father and he said, Dad, I know it. I feel so bad. And I've been praying to God every night that he would forgive me for what I've done wrong. His father said, what did you say? You mean to tell me you've been praying to God that he would forgive you? He says, oh. And the son said, yeah. He said, oh. Well, that's something totally different. I'll cover the damages. You're forgiven. Go on outside and play. He said the seven-year-old boy became an evangelist that day because he went outside and he told everybody what his daddy had done. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Involves hearing and obeying Jesus. And if we could sum it up, what God is calling us to do as we come to him and admit our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness, and he forgives us, and he loves us, and he says, go on outside and play, and make sure you tell everybody what your daddy did. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which gives life, which shows us our need and our, Lord, that we're a mess. As we already talked about, we like to pretend, we like to act like we've got it all together, Lord, but we can't fool you. And thank you so much that you know us better than we know ourselves. Would you wrap us up in your love and would you spur us on to love and good deeds? Would you help us to love you with our whole heart? Would you help us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Would you equip us to go out and tell all that you've done, never forgetting to come right back running into your presence all the days of our lives? And we pray this in the matchless name of the one who did it all for us, our Lord Jesus. Amen.